Amen. Let's look at Mark 10, 17 through 31 together this morning. Hear God's word. He was setting out on his journey. A man came up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but with God, not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left his house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Well, Jesus is just coming off talking with children. The disciples have kind of exhorted Jesus to not... Let the children crowd him, and Jesus exhorts his disciples back and says, let the children come to me. And, and as they're departing that region, after he's talked about uh, letting children come to him, and really the message behind that is to have a childlike dependent faith, he's leaving, and all of a sudden this rich young ruler comes up. And we get that title, rich young ruler, from a combination of Mark, uh, Luke, and Matthew's stories about this guy who all put the pieces together. And it turns out, if you read the three accounts of this story, he is a rich young ruler. So this rich young ruler comes to Jesus and begins to plead with him, Jesus, what must I do to uh, inherit eternal life? Now this morning I want to introduce to you two people, and we'll be talking about really just the rich young ruler this morning, but Mike Milton, my chancellor of the seminary that I went to in Charlotte, just had a great way of introducing this passage, so I had to use it. So let me introduce you to two people that I think you know this morning. The first one is this. He's a young man who's rich, He's got the Italian shoes and the tailored suit. His money is invested. His plastic is platinum. He lives like he flies, first class, right? He's young. He pumps away fatigue at the gym. He slam dunks old age on the court. His belly is flat and his eyes are sharp. Energy is his trademark, and death is an eternity away for him. He's powerful. If you don't think so, you just ask him. You've got questions, listen, he's got answers. You've got problems, listen, he's got solutions. He knows where he's going and he's going to be there tomorrow. He's a new generation, so the old better pick up and pack their bags. He's mastered the three P's for today, prosperity, posterity, and power. Who is he? Well, he might be among you here in the congregation, a top salesman in his district. Maybe she, it's, it's, a, it's a woman, is she's a high-rising attorney, a par, uh, attorney, attorney may partner in her firm. Maybe he's a successful real estate broker who has so many deals, but he can handle every single one of them. But in the Bible, 
He is the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus. And as he comes to Jesus, today we're going to see that his life comes screeching to a halt. At least the way life is as he's been living it. And he runs to Jesus with this question. Jesus, what's in it for me? What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do to get it? What's in it for me? What do I I have to do to get it, Jesus? Now here's the other person. That was the first person. Here's the other person. She's gifted and she's called. She's been a faithful Sunday Sunday school teacher and she knows her Bible. She's committed to the Great Commission She knows her faith. She's a woman of prayer who raises her children in the faith. She's a disciple of the Lord Jesus. At least that's what people think and what they think is right. She loves the Lord Jesus. She gives and devotes all of her work to the Lord, but she struggles with just one question. What's in it for me? I have given you, Lord, so much of service in my life. What's in it for me? Lord, will you just make sure that my kids turn out all right? And Lord, will you help me and my husband? We want to retire early. I have left all to follow you, Jesus. And I just want to prioritize my time. All I want for you is to bring healing to me and to retire early and for my kids to turn out all right. And that woman is Peter here in this passage. We've left all for you, Jesus. What's in it for me? You see, what's in it for me? I think that's a a great question, isn't it? That's a convicting question. What's in it for me? And I don't think that's such a strange question for all of us in our hearts. If you be honest, let's just be honest, doesn't, don't you ask that question very often in your heart? What's in it for me? And we often come before the Lord and we ask that question, Lord, what's in it for me? Lord, what's in it for me? What's in it for this church? What's in it for me at this church? Lord, I've gone through so much in my life. Lord, what's in it for me? Lord, I've paid my time. I've done my dues, Lord, What's in it for me? What's in it for me if I follow Jesus? And that's the question and the dilemma that we're going to look at in our text this morning in Mark 10. So this morning, we're really just going to see a profile of the rich young ruler. I wish we had time to get more into Peter and the disciples' response. Maybe we'll do that another week. But this morning, we're going to more so look at this profile uh, and reaction of the rich young ruler as he comes to Jesus. So what does he do? He comes to Jesus, runs up to Jesus, and says... What do I have to do? What do I have to do, Jesus, to attain eternal life? Listen, I've attained everything else, Jesus. I'm rich and I'm powerful. And I've got to figure this eternal life thing out. I've got to conquer this. What can you do to help me with this, Jesus? And then following Jesus' response to the rich young ruler, which we'll look at in a minute, <clears throat> we just read that the disciples also have a response to Jesus. And Peter, again, is their spokesman. Almost like I could see the disciples pushing Peter, going, hey, Peter, why don't you go ask him? <laughs> You're the one who's gotten in trouble so many times. Go ahead. What's another time? Go ask him. And Jesus says, uh, Peter says, Jesus, we've all followed you. We have left everything, lucrative fishing business. We've left our families. We want to know what's in it for, for us, Jesus. What about me, Jesus? And that's the driving question behind our passage this morning. What's in it for me? And I think behind the issues of money and wealth that Jesus does address here in this passage, uh, money and wealth in the kingdom of God that Jesus is talking about, there's a deeper root. And isn't there always? Jesus loves us so much that he loves to get at the root of us. He doesn't want to just deal with the surface. He wants to go to the deepest places of your heart. And I think the deepest places here in this passage aren't so much about wealth and money, but I think really the deeper root and meaning of this passage is the issue of security. 
eternal security and temporal security. Now, the rich young ruler in our story this morning comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to have eternal security, Jesus? And Peter and the disciples are really more concerned about eternal security, yes, but also even temporal security and more. And to be honest, I mean, let me just be honest. And I think all of us, we were to sit around and have coffee, we'd all probably agree with this. That do, you, do you struggle with security? I want to be secure. I don't know about you guys. I like to be secure. And not only do I like to be secure, but I like to be comfortable. Man, you put security and comfort, comfortableness together, ooh, those are two big idols. And the Lord loves to bump those idols all the time. Elbow them, boom, boom. You know, he loves to get in on those idols to drive deep and go beyond and begin to help me see that those insecurity and comfort are not bad things. They're good things to have. It's okay if you have a big portfolio. It's okay if you have a home. I mean, security's okay and comfort's okay, but when those good things become God things, we've talked about this a few weeks ago, they become bad things. And here in this rich young ruler's life, security was a huge issue for him. Huge issue for him. Really for Peter and the disciples. Huge issue for them. Otherwise, they wouldn't have said, we've left everything to follow you. So security is a big deal for me, and it's often a struggle. And if I let the pursuit and the lust of security and comfort take over my life, then it really does become a huge idol in my life. Well, this morning, I want to look at um, two things this morning about security. And the first one is this. And the whole context, the whole background behind our passage this morning is, is it, the language of economics and wealth really is used in the context of our passage this morning. Because it does seem like all about economics and wealth here, but really, again, the deeper issue here is about security. So the first thing we learn about having security in the kingdom of God and even temporal security is this, that according to this passage, you need to divest yourself, not invest. That's the second point. The first one is to divest yourself, to put off, to get rid of, if you will, to have taken off of you, to divest someone of an asset or to divest someone of a position. That means that's taken away from them. So the first thing about principle, about learning about security in the kingdom of God is being divested. You have to divest yourself of some things in your life if you want to have eternal and temporal security. You know, Jesus had been teaching about children, rebuking his disciples about children, let the children come to me. And then Mark tells us that the young ruler comes and runs up to Jesus, falls before his feet, as Mark plainly tells us, and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And before Jesus answers this question, I love this, he hones in on this guy like a surgeon with, uh, with a scalpel, right? And says, why are you calling me good? Doesn't directly answer his question, but answers his question with a question, which he often does. Why are you calling me good? Don't you know that only God is good? So here's the first thing you need to divest yourself of. And this is what Jesus was telling this young ruler when he said, why are you calling me good? No one is good except God alone. Here's what he's saying. You must divest yourself, son, of a zeal without knowledge. The first thing that we must divest ourselves is a, is from is a zeal without knowledge. Now here's the thing. Jesus doesn't say this guy. He doesn't answer his question with a question saying, why are you calling me good? No one is good except God alone. He's not saying that question and that statement to talk about his Christology. Jesus is sure of who he is, right? He knows that he is God's son. He is sure of his identity, that he is God's son, that his father is the one who has sent him. So he's not talking about who he is so much. See, when the young man calls Jesus good teacher, 
Jesus is seeking a deeper knowledge of this young ruler. And whether this young ruler knew it or not, he was coming before the Lord of the universe. He's coming before the God of the universe in all of his zeal and all of his excitement. And Jesus is beginning to question him to help uncover, is this guy really truly coming to me because he really just wants to know? Or does he really want to be a disciple and a follower of me? So the first thing in order for you to have eternal security is to divest yourself of a zeal without knowledge. You see, you can have zeal for religion, right? You can be very religious and have great zeal for religious things. I'm going to turn my life over to the Lord. I'm going to turn over a new leaf. And how many times have we turned over a new leaf and a new leaf and a new leaf and a new leaf? We have zeal after zeal. We kind of jump from zeal to zeal, right? Because we have this knowledge of God. What do I have to do, Jesus? Well, first of all, you have to divest yourself of a zeal without knowledge. Paul said that those, where do I get this from? I get it from Paul. Remember when Paul said this, he said that there are those who are zealous for God, but their zeal for God was based on what? No knowledge of God. It was an empty zeal. You probably can look back when you were younger, when you maybe first came to the Lord or the Lord was working in your life and you were learning about his grace. You were zealous, weren't you? You were excited about your faith. You were excited about uh, doing things to make yourself more right with God, if you will. I'll never forget this lesson that I learned. It was um, college, really early seminary. But I was zealous for God in college. You know, I felt like I could conquer the world. And then when I got to seminary and I started gaining all of this knowledge about theology, about the character of God, about evangelism and the sovereignty of God, learning tons of things. And I was zealous. You know, I was annoyingly zealous. I was like one of those seminary students who were like, run, he's coming. I don't want to talk to him. Just drive you crazy. And so I thought, you know, listen, I am going to do something great for God. I am going to build my skills here, add to my toolbox. And there was this um, chaplaincy rotation being offered at Presbyterian Hospital in Charlotte. And I thought, you know what? I'll sign up for that. Why not? Never been a hospital chaplain. I didn't know what I was doing, but I was zealous. I thought, you know, God's going to approve of me more. God, God, you know, I can get even more right with you if I do this. So I, I go and I sign up for this uh, chaplaincy rotation. And it was this brief little orientation, you know, and then they kick you out to the wolves, you know. And I spent the night at the hospital. I was on call. I mean, I was as green as they came. You know, middle seminary student thinking I owned the world and I could parse a Greek sentence in 10 seconds flat, not really, but, but you know, I, I thought I was the stuff. And I get this call in the middle of the night and, I, and, and by the way, they assigned me to the oncology and hospice unit, one of the hardest units in the hospital. And I get this call in the middle of the night and I walk into this room and here's this uh, early 30-something guy in tears, as yellow as uh, somebody's shirt around here. I mean, he had jaundice, he was yellow. He had just been admitted. Uh, I walk into the room and he's in tears. He and his wife were just in a heap of tears in the middle of the room crying because he had been diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer that had covered his body, tumors everywhere. He had just thrown up his last week's dinner because his intestines are so rife with tumors that he could no longer digest any food. He had put off going to the doctor, and finally he was so sick, he came to the hospital. And the doctor literally was walking out of the room as I was walking in, and he had said that he, he might have a few weeks left to live. And here I am, this zeal, walking into this room going, okay, and here he is in tears. And what am I to say to him? I didn't have the words. I didn't know what to tell him. 
You know, I'm supposed to give this guy hope and I'm supposed to give this guy encouragement. I'm supposed to give him assurance as he's looking for answers and I had nothing to give him. I had zeal before I walked into that room and I had nothing but shame and humility as I left that room because the Lord taught me a huge lesson that, light, that night that I had come to the point that I had to admit that I didn't know squat <laughs> and I had to divest myself of this zeal without knowledge. I had to grow up that night. I had to come to terms with my own mortality, my own stupidity. And I had to learn that there, there had to be more. <laughs> there had to be more than just knowledge. It had to move from my head to my heart. And that's what he's doing here. Jesus is doing with this rich young ruler. He's saying, listen, whoa, whoa, whoa. You call me good. You see, Jesus is saying, listen, I know you. I've created you. I've numbered the very hairs on your head, as Psalm 139 says but do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? See, beloved, it's not just about coming to church. It's not just about acknowledging Jesus with your lips, but it's about giving him your whole life. It's not just about zeal without a knowledge. It's about entrusting yourself to him, all of yourself to him, because he came to earth to die on a cross for you. Why did he do that? Because you are desperately wicked and you are sick. You are the guy on the floor in a heap about to die. You are sick. And the only rescue you have, the only medicine that gives you any hope is the gospel of the Lord Jesus when he died on the cross for your sin. So we learn in this passage that you have to divest yourself of a zeal without knowledge. Second thing Jesus challenges him to divest himself of that we need to divest ourselves of is our own self-righteousness. Our own self-righteousness. So Jesus is dialoguing with the rich young ruler, right? And after a little while, Jesus stops him and gives him an answer. And, and the rich young ruler responds to Jesus that he's been a good guy. And I think Jesus takes his answer at face value. Mark tells us that he does. He doesn't really say anything. He takes his answer for face value. He believes that this guy really was a good guy. What does Jesus tell him? Listen, so how do I, how do I attain eternal life, Jesus? What do I got to do to get it? And Jesus says, okay, do not murder do not commit adultery, verse 19. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Do not, uh, you honor your father and mother. And he said to him, well, teacher, I have done all of these. I have kept all of these from my youth. And it almost seems like Jesus here, when he quotes the Old Testament law, he's almost being a little bit casual in his reference to the law of Moses. But he's not toying with this guy. He's not toying with the young ruler. He already knew the measure of this guy. He knew what was in this guy's heart. He had searched him and known him. So Jesus wasn't just throwing the law at this guy, giving him this spiritual checklist to check off. No, the commandments he refers to, Jesus is testing him. Do you know if you go in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, right? You can know the Ten Commandments, right? And you can check those off. Well, listen, I haven't killed anybody, check. You know, I have not committed adultery, check. You know, I, I mean, I haven't defrauded my neighbor. Okay, check. You can do that. But then you go to Matthew 5 and you read the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus says, you have heard it said, do not murder, but if you have anger in your heart against your brother, then you have essentially murdered your brother. Well, I've never committed adultery. Well, if you've ever lusted after a woman, you have committed adultery. So Jesus takes the law and he expands it to where we can't escape it. And he drives and drills down deep in this guy's life and he's testing him to see if this guy understood, his understanding of God was just based on obeying the law and understanding and obeying the commandments. It was just an outward formality of obedience. I love Psalm 119. 
If you read Psalm 119, David's talking about not the burden of God's law, but the absolute blessing and gift of God's law. Listen to what he says in Psalm 119. David says, I hold fast, I cling to it like a child clings to its mom, mom's robe or, or skirt. I hold fast to God's statutes. That's not the language of somebody who just kind of has to obey God's law just for the sake of sheer obedience and outward formality, is it? I cling to his law. It's precious to me. His love and his law are precious to me, David says. And then he says, I run in the path of your commands for you have set my heart free. See, this young man's heart was not free, but he was chained to his own self-righteousness. And he reveals that, doesn't he? When he says, Jesus, listen, I have been there and done that. I have kept these laws since I was a child. And three words betrayed him. I, I have kept. I have kept these commandments since my youth. Aren't you proud of me, Jesus? You know, he was like Paul. You remember Paul when he was giving kind of his spiritual resume in Philippians chapter 3. Paul, before the full force of God's law began to reveal the nature, the true nature of his heart, Paul thought he was alive, but on the inside he was dead as a doornail in his condition on the inside. So what does he say in Philippians 3 when he gives his spiritual resume before he knows Jesus? He says, hey, listen, if any one of you has reasons for having confidence in the flesh, outward formality of the law, following God's law, let me give you... Let me, let me one-up you, he says. I have more reasons. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I am of the people of Israel, God's chosen race. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. I have lots of zeal. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. As far as his external following of the law, he got it. Check, check, check. But then listen to what he says. But whatever gain I had, check, 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 I count it as loss. I count it as rubbish. That Greek word is literally dung. I count it as a heaping pile of dung for the sake of knowing Jesus. Indeed, I count everything in my life as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing and loving and clinging to Jesus, my Lord. See, this young man was really blind to what he was really like on the inside. So we don't just divest ourselves of this zeal before knowledge or of our self-righteousness, but here Jesus calls him to divest himself of one thing. What do I mean? What does he say? Jesus, I have kept all these things. I followed the law and done them. I've kept them since I was a kid. And then Jesus says, son, you have, but you lack one thing. Notice that. That's interesting two words, or three words. Lack one thing. What is it, Jesus? Go ahead. Jesus says, son, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And then come and follow me. That was the one thing that was keeping him from God, wasn't it? That one thing for the young ruler was what? It was money. You know what money really was for this guy? It was the battleground of his heart. Money was the battleground of this guy's heart. It was the battleground of his life. You know, we all have battlegrounds in our lives, don't we? Look at me. It's okay. You can look at me. Don't be ashamed. 
We all have battlegrounds. This is good news, folks. This might be an opportunity for you to be free. We all have battlegrounds in our lives. There is often for us that one thing that we cling to. There's that one thing that was keeping this guy from God, and it was money. And it was money for him, right? That was the battleground in his life. And we all have battlegrounds in our life. And the issue with that is, really, what is the battleground of our life? What, what is it really? It's that I, will, I, I resist surrendering my life and relinquishing my will to God. That really is at the core of what the battleground of my heart is about. It's that I don't want to relinquish my will to the Lord. I don't want to surrender my life completely to him. So we see that this morning Jesus talks about this particular battleground, battleground with this rich young ruler about money for him and how it's easier for the biggest animal in Palestine, a camel, right, to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to go to heaven. And then he goes on to say, with all things, God is possible. But see, behind the issue of this battleground issue of money was really the issue of trusting God. That was the battleground issue of this guy's heart, trusting God. And that's my prayer for you, Wellspring. It's my prayer for me this morning is, Lord, show us in your mercy, what is the battleground issues of my heart? Where are the areas where I do it? I'll duke it out with you, God, because I don't want to surrender that to you. It just provides me too much comfort. Or I've grown up finding so much security in that, and I, I don't want to relinquish that to you. You know, what's, for maybe you this morning who don't know the Lord, what's the one thing? There is one thing in your life that is preventing you from receiving the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior. What is that one thing? Maybe you know the Lord. You've been walking with the Lord here this morning, and you've trusted Him, but there's that one thing in your life that you just, resist yielding to him because you're afraid. There's one area where it's really hard for you to entrust to him and he's calling you and he wants to call you to a different ministry, maybe to more ministry, and yet you resist him. What is that one thing? And Jesus says, divest yourself of this one thing. Turn it over to me. I'll receive it and I will bless you far more than you could ever imagine if you would just trust me. So we've looked at divesting ourselves of our zeal without knowledge, of our self-righteousness, and of that, quote, one thing. And the second principle we see here from this passage is not only do we divest ourselves, but then we have to be invested. We have to invest ourselves in order to have internal security, even to have temporal security, right? Is you have to invest, right? And that's what Jesus is saying here. And I don't think for a minute that this rich young Euler was just some kind of arrogant punk. He was quite the opposite. You know, he was earnest. I do believe, honestly, he was earnest. I think he was sincere. He was religious. He was devoted. He was a young man. And we, we have seen as far as he understood in his own heart that he had kept God's commandments. But he still had that nagging question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I think that question betrayed what he was feeling, the angst that he was feeling in his heart because he knew he had kept the law from his youth. He knew that he was sincere, but he knew that there was something missing. And I think if we would have known this guy personally, I think we would have really liked him. I think he, we'd probably be good friends with him. I think we would have really admired him. And I think that's why Mark tells us, and it's interesting, Mark says that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. You don't find that very often in the Gospels at all. Jesus looked at this guy and he loved him. See, Jesus loved him enough to cut to the deepest places of his heart, to search him and show him that there was one thing 
holding him back. Go sell all your possessions. There's still one God in his life that he prized uh, more than the knowledge of the true God who was standing right there before him. And sadly, what does Mark tell us that he does? Verse 22, disheartened by the saying of Jesus, he went away sorrowful. He left. The opportunity to be free was standing right there and he turned away. For he had great possessions, Mark tells us. He turns away from Jesus. Jesus had lovingly exposed him. That's what I love about discipleship and discipline and the Lord loving me is that he lovingly exposes me. It's a good thing. You know, when we challenge each other, we discipline each other, often in human terms it's harsh and it hurts and often not helpful, but whenever God disciplines us, God is always gentle. I think I see it here, Jesus. Jesus wasn't in the guy's face. He was loving him. Saying, listen, there is one thing you're clinging to, and if you would just let go and trust me, you will have eternal life. You will have treasures in heaven. He was lovingly exposing this guy. It wasn't embarrassing. This guy caught a glimpse of what it would like, be like to be free from his burdens, and yet he turned away back to that one thing that he had been finding life in. He had almost escaped the bondage. If he had only divested himself of his earthly wealth and invested himself into Jesus. You see, here was this young man who had unbelievable wealth, right? He had unbelievable status. He had unbelievable power. And he was not willing to take the risk of investing, uh, to take the risk of faith by leaving that investment and risking it all, betting it all on the investment of the greater wealth of trusting in Jesus. You see, investing, in order to make an investment on earth, right, if I want to, you know, I, I don't know, I'm not much of an investor. You can tell I'm having trouble even thinking of what an investment it is. I have $100 and I want to go invest in uh, Apple computers, which wouldn't buy a whole share of Apple. Okay, Target. I have $100 and I want to go invest it in Target. There is a potential for loss, Correct. I give them $100, and I might make $100. I might lose $100. Is that correct, Jonathan? Yes, investments. Okay, so to invest something, something is there's always a risk of loss. Isn't that true? Okay. Investment always involves risk. Investing in Christ involves the biggest risk in the world. Hear me out on this. You risk losing yourself. You have to lose yourself. The gains far outweigh the loss, folks. Trust me, they far outweigh the loss. And investing yourself in Christ will feel like death at first. Faith always feels like death. Taking that first step towards Jesus, the one thing that you want to release feels like death. But it's just a pinprick (laughs) because the treasure you get of the love of Jesus far outweighs that pinprick of feeling like death. Investment always involves risk and loss, but there are infinite returns as we invest and trust Christ. So what was this rich young ruler's biggest mistake? He had made the biggest decision, get this, he had made the biggest decision of his life on the basis of this life and not on the basis of eternal life. You get that? The biggest mistake he made was that he made the biggest decision of his life based on this life now and not on the basis of eternal life. 
You see, if he had remembered, only if he had remembered the story that I'm sure he had been told from youth. He was a good Jewish child, a good disciple. He had obeyed the law. He knew the law. If he had only remembered the story that he had learned when he was a kid, the story about Moses where the writer of Hebrews tells us in Moses 11, uh, chapters 11 about Moses, he said, Moses counted disgrace for the sake of Christ as greater value than all the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. See, beloved, Moses calculated his wealth based on the economics of heaven and the investments of God in Christ. Where the young man in our text this morning was based, his wealth was based on the this inaccurate calculator, and that was his wealth. In fact, this guy stands, this rich young ruler here in Mark stands as the perpetual monument for us, the perpetual flame. I went to Liberty a few months back, and I saw the flame of Jerry Falwell. Not to knock that, but it was a little corny. Sorry. There it was, this perpetual flame reminding you of someone. Here in Mark is this perpetual flame reminding you of this guy who stands as the reminder that if we have everything, but if we don't have Christ, we ultimately have nothing. Don't be the reminder that you can have everything in Christ if you would but trust him. And you know, I think there's another reason that Mark mentions to us that Jesus looked upon this young ruler, this young man, and says that he loved him. You know, think about Jesus at this point in his life. Jesus was about 31 years old. This rich young ruler, probably 20s, 30s. Real similar in age, right? And he was looking at this young man, and I think the reason Mark tells us that he loved him was because he was identifying with this young man. Because think about this. Jesus was a rich young ruler too, wasn't he? He was the ultimate rich young ruler. He was infinitely richer than this young man standing before him, wasn't he? Jesus had lived with the incomprehensible glory of his Father and the Holy Spirit, this joy and wealth and glory and majesty of the Trinity. And coming to earth, what did he do? He left all of that wealth behind him. As Paul says that though Christ was rich, he became what? Poor for our sakes. And Jesus was going into poverty that was deeper than this young man could ever comprehend. For you see, Jesus was saying, I am giving it all away for you, son. I am giving it all away for you. And if I can give away my big all to get you and love you, then you can give away your little all for me to follow me. You see, Jesus wasn't just asking this guy to go and do something that Jesus hadn't already done for him. Get that? He wasn't asking him to go and sell his possessions and give all his income to the poor because Jesus had already done that himself. Jesus was the ultimate rich young ruler and he gave away his ultimate wealth to get this guy, to get him. He gave away his ultimate wealth to get you, folks. And he stands before you this morning to say, what is that one thing that you're clinging to? It's itty-bitty. It's smaller than the smallest little hole I can make with my fingers. Jesus gave away his big all to get your little all if you would just surrender and trust him. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you, Jesus, that you are our rich young ruler and you left the riches and the glory of your Father.
so that we could know you, so that we could be free from the bondage of wealth, not just monetary wealth, Lord, but even comfort wealth and sex wealth and food wealth and drink wealth with pride wealth and arrogance wealth. Lord, we think we're wealthy, but really we're just poor beggars. I pray, Lord, that maybe, not maybe, would you, in the power of your spirit, just uncover. There are some folks here this morning who just need to be exposed and who need to see that the wealth that they're trusting in is, is worthless. Uh, it's rubbish. And Lord, I pray that as they see that, that quickly more so they would see Jesus and his offer, a free offer of grace and free offer of forgiveness and the free offer of heaven and the treasures of heaven and the free offer of your infinite, magnificent, majestic, precious love. And that they might become uh, free. And that, Father, you would wash them and clean them. And their hearts would, for the first time, begin to be set free. And they would run in the path of your commands. For those of us, Lord, who do know you, but who are weighted down with 20 sweatsuits and ankle weights, and we can barely make it, would you free us once again, those one things, those things that we cling to, whether it's our own righteousness or it's our own worth or our own reputation. Or, you know what it is, Lord. That we might once again start running free and running in joy and delight in the path of your commands as we trust you and as we celebrate you. Father, thank you for this dear congregation, these precious ones. Would you meet them where they are now, Father, and encourage them. And I pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus, our King and our Savior and our ultimate rich young ruler. Amen.